This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Thanks for tuning in. Today's episode has been carefully curated from the Top of Mind archive, and there's a lot to choose from. We've been going in-depth with guests on the air every weekday since 2015, searching for new perspectives and ideas. I hope what you hear today makes you think about your world a little differently and sparks satisfying new conversations with the people in your life. Let's dive in. There's a solid chance you or someone you know has had a near-death experience. Maybe it was a dramatic, light-filled encounter with a deceased loved one. Or it might have been an out-of-body thing where somebody dies on the operating table and watches the doctors resuscitating their body. Or a dream-like thing where someone recalls being told it's not time yet and you need to go back. Psychiatrist Bruce Grayson did not set out to study near-death experiences, but an encounter with a patient early in his medical training launched him down this path. And his new book, called After, breaks down what science can and cannot explain about experiences people report having on the threshold of life and death. Bruce Grayson is with us now. Dr. Grayson, hello. Hi, Julie. Thanks for having me on your show. What was the encounter that convinced you that there was something to study here at all, that it wasn't just people having hallucinations? Uh, well, actually, you know, I grew up, as, as you might know, in a scientific household where we never talked about anything spiritual or religious. And I grew up thinking that when you die, that's the end, and that was fine. And uh, shortly after I became a psychiatrist, I was asked to see a patient in the emergency room who had overdosed. And when I went to see her, she had uh, been totally unconscious. I could not arouse her no matter what I did. But her roommate who had brought her in was waiting in another room down the hall to talk to me. So I spoke to the roommate, got information about the patient from her. After about 15 minutes, sent her home, went back to see the patient who was still quite unconscious. So she was admitted to the intensive care unit overnight. And I arranged to come back and see her in the morning after she awoke. When I came back in the morning, she was barely awake, very drowsy. And I started by introducing myself and she stopped me and said, I know who you are. I remember you from last night. Well, that kind of threw me because I couldn't imagine what she was talking about. So I said, I'm surprised. I thought you were unconscious when I talked to you last night. And then she opened her eye for the first time and said to me, not in my room. I saw you talking to my roommate down the hall. Well, that just blew me away. I couldn't imagine how that could be. That would mean she had to leave her body and come. T- and I, that, that made no sense to me. As far as I could tell, I was my, I was my body. How can you leave it? Um, but my job was to help her with her confusion, not with mine. So I tried to suppress my feelings for a while. I was, I was really upset about it. Uh, and she could see I was upset. So she then said to me very clearly, um, she started talking about what we were doing in the room down the hall. She talked about the conversation I had with her roommate, where we were sitting, what we were wearing, even down to having the details of a spot of spaghetti on my tie that I had dropped on my tie a few minutes before I came down to see her. So I, I just couldn't imagine what this was all about. And as a scientist, it didn't make any sense to me. And therefore, it meant to me, you need to study this. You need to understand it. So I started collecting other cases, and uh, here I am 50 years later still trying to understand it. <laughs> yeah, you haven't necessarily found all the answers that you hoped to find, have you? <laughs> <laughs> no, I have not. Uh, you know, I think maybe we're asking the wrong questions if we can't find the answers. Mm. Well, I guess the big question is, are they, like, uh, w- was she actually out of her body <laughs> or not? Yeah. I mean, you know, fundamentally, but but as a scientist, how do you even begin to study that? Because you didn't put her in a brain scanner at the time no, that this no. was happening. And, and you can't, I mean, you can't invoke a near-death experience on someone just so you could study what's going on. No. So, and we can't uh, do imaging of their brains when they're in a crisis and being resuscitated either. Right. So we're kind of stuck with um, having to study them after the fact. And when people tell us that they left their bodies and saw things that they couldn't possibly have seen or heard in a distant location, all we can say is that they have this information we can't explain, and we don't know how they got it. It's possible that they left their bodies, as they say they did, um, but any way they got the information is not through the normal sensory means we usually know. Can we talk through some of the hypotheses that you have either success, you, that you have ruled out or maybe not ruled out? The first one would be, uh, this is some sort of weird fake memory. 
that they, you know, maybe they were they were hearing stuff. They were they weren't totally unconscious. Their brain was there right. that, you know, it, like somehow this is something they, they were hearing or feeling something in their physical body. And this is how they have interpreted it. This is the story that their mind has created for them about right, what happened. Right. How do you rule well, that out? Well, we do know that in some cases, very rarely, someone who was anesthetized or unconscious can still hear things. Uh, hearing is usually the last sense to go. But we also have people who not only hear, but see things um, that were going on either around the body or at another location. And they describe them accurately in very great detail. And uh, sometimes these are people who were totally anesthetized. And if it's during an operation, they may have had their, their eyes taped shut uh, in addition. So there's no way they could have actually seen these things. And yet they describe them uh, visually in a very accurate terms. Uh, we just can't explain how that can be. Okay. Um, well, could it? Could, is there something biologically that's happening in a person in a moment of extreme trauma like that, where their where their heart stops momentarily, or they're you know they're on the verge of death and they're being resuscitated? Yeah. Well, that was my my working hypothesis. As I said, I grew up as a scientist, and I was looking for some physiological explanation for this. So we tested everything we could test. For example. Uh, no matter how you come close to death, one of the last things that happens is if you stop getting oxygen supply to the brain. So we thought maybe lack of oxygen is causing these things. So we because, did research. And, on sorry, it. let me just let me just interject. Sure. So a lack of oxygen would cause a sort of hallucinatory state potentially. Well, it would certainly uh, produce problems for the brain. Uh, it would make the brain do all sorts of unusual things that it doesn't usually do. Okay, um, which might include. The experience of being, uh, you know, like remembering, like creating a memory that you had been out of your body. Yeah, it certainly would create some confusion and some misinterpretation of things. Okay. Um, so we looked at what the oxygen level was of people who are in near-death crises, such as people having a cardiac arrest where their hearts stop. And what we found, both studies in here and in the United Kingdom, was that people who report near-death experiences when they're close to death actually have more oxygen going to their brains than people who don't report near-death experiences. So the lack of oxygen was not causing the experience. Wait, how do you know that? Likewise, we thought maybe, well, because we can see that people who report near-death experiences have more oxygen going to their brains. Because their, uh, because their blood oxygen, their blood oxygen, arrest. and I just right. want to be clear, their blood oxygen is being yeah. monitored in the moment of their crisis and, and the CPR that's going on or whatever. And so, and then you can correlate that after the fact, if they say they had a, right. had a near-death experience. Well, of course, if they, are, if they are in the hospital or being treated by the a rescue squad, they will have things like oxygen being monitored and their, uh, their uh, cardiac heart rhythms. Um, but of course, many near-death experiences do not occur under medical care, and we don't know what's going on with those people. Okay. Another theory that we thought might pl be plausible is, is they were given drugs as they were approaching death, and the drugs might be causing the hallucinations. But again, we found that the more drugs people are given, the less likely they are to report a near-death experience. Hmm. Now, starting out as a psychiatrist, one of the thoughts I had was that this is somehow a type of mental illness that's being uh, triggered by the, the near-death condition. So I looked at uh, the signs of mental illness in these people. And we found that in large studies of, of thousands of people, we find that the rate of mental illness in near-death experiencers is the same as it is in people who don't have near-death experiences. We also looked at a large sample of psychiatric patients and asked whether they have had near-death experiences. And it turns out they have the same number of near-death experiences as people who are not psychiatric patients. So there seemed to be no association between mental illness and near-death experiences. Is there anything that you've found, because at this point over the last 50 years, you've, anytime you can, you find somebody who's had a near-death experience, yeah. you want to collect whatever information you can. So, you you know, you've studied hundreds right, of these people right. at this point. Is there anything that you can say that they all have in common that seems to help predict whether or not someone would be likely to have a near-death experience when they're at death's door? There is not, Julie. We've, we looked at physiological factors. We looked at personality factors. We looked at um, religion, religiosity, uh, cultural factors, personality factors. And we have not found any way to predict who's going to have a near-death experience or what kind they're going to have. What do you mean what kind they're going to have? Well, some people, as you, as you mentioned in the introduction, 
have a sense of leaving the body and just hanging around the body. And some people seem to go to another realm or other dimension where they may encounter uh, deceased loved ones or entities they can they interpret as deities. Um, most of these near-death experiences are pleasant, but occasionally we find one that is not pleasant. Uh, so there are different types of experiences we can all lump together as near-death experience. Can you share an example of someone who had a near-death experience that that like did not conform with what they would have expected to experience oh, if yes. they were to have one of those? Because yeah, that yeah. would have been my my assumption would be that at least sure, when people sure, have a near-death yeah. experience, they're going to, you know, they're going to have the one they expect to have. Right, right. Well, a great many people who have been raised in a certain religion will have experiences that don't conform to that and come back saying, you know, I, I saw something that I thought was, was God, but it wasn't like the God I was taught about in church. Hmm. It was much bigger than that. But some of the most impressive um, uh, near-death experiences to me are people who were atheists before their experience and had no belief at all in a God of any type. And they come back saying, I don't understand it, but I met God and I don't believe in it, but there's no mistake and God was there and God talked to me and sent me back. Hmm. Um, so we have also uh, people from different cultures uh, who have experiences that are all the same, despite what the culture would have taught them that. In fact, we have experiences going back to ancient Greece and Rome 2,000 years ago that sound like the near-death experiences we have today. Huh. What does that tell you? It tells me that these are a universal phenomenon, uh, that maybe because there's some universal psychological trait causing it, or some universal physiological trait causing it, or maybe that they're the same because they're just accurate perceptions of what's really happening. Yeah. I'm speaking with Bruce Grayson, who's a psychiatrist, a professor emeritus of psychiatry at the University of Virginia, and he's got a new book called After, A Doctor Explores What Near-Death Experiences Reveal About Life. Um, what percentage of people who go near death <laughs> end up yeah. having a near-death experience. Yeah, yeah. It's between 15 and 20% of yeah. people who uh, have their hearts stop, who have documented uh, cardiac arrest where their hearts have stopped. And that's been the same in every country where it's been studied, in the U.S., Japan, Germany, the United Kingdom, Japan, so forth. Uh, so we're pretty confident about that. And that comes out to about 5% of the general population. So that means one in 20 people has had a near-death experience. So it's likely someone in your family or in your workplace or in your classroom has had an NDE or near-death experience. Do you think that the near-death experience is happening while the body is dead? Wow, that's a great question. Um, you know, our, our standard neurological uh, theories would say that's impossible, hmm. and yet Sometimes these people describe events going on around the body um, that let us pinpoint when it was happening because they may, may describe a certain person in the room, a certain activity going on. So we know that's exactly when the near-death experience happened. And we can document in some cases that their brainwaves were flat or that um, they were totally unconscious at the time. And so does that suggest to you that this is scientific evidence of something besides the physical body? Yeah, that's, that's a scary thought, isn't it? Um, it does seem to me to suggest that the mind is not just what the brain does. You know, we're all trained to believe that the mind and the brain are basically the same thing. And the brain creates all our thoughts and feelings. But here we have this experience that's fairly common in which people's brains are not functioning as they usually are. And in some cases, they're totally not functioning at all. And yet people tell us that at those times, their thinking and perceptions and feelings were more vivid than ever before. And that strongly suggests that the mind is something that can function independently of the brain. Now that's striking because in normal everyday life, it seems as if the mind and the brain are the same thing. Hmm. When you get drunk, you don't think very clearly, or when you get hit on the head, so clearly in everyday life, the brain and the mind seem very closely linked. But in extreme situations like a near-death experience, that association breaks down. Could the mind also be called a, a, the consciousness or even the spirit, I guess, religious people might 
talk right. about the body right. and it the could spirit. Be called, um, uh, you know, mind, um, consciousness. Uh, people have called it soul or spirit. Those, of course, have a lot of connotations that we don't necessarily want to get into because mm-hmm. that's not scientific quotes. Um, but certainly that part of us that thinks and feels and makes decisions is what we're talking about. Yeah. And, but if, but some people have these experiences when they come close to death and some people don't. Can we explain right, that? Right. Or do you think it's maybe that everybody has them? It's just that 20% can remember them and recount them afterwards. Well, that's possible that only 20% remember them, uh, but we have no way of knowing. Certainly, uh, as a psychiatrist, what's most interesting to me is how these experiences change people's lives. And there are dramatic, long-lasting changes in some way someone uh, thinks and acts after a near-death experience. Give us an example and that of that. Does, and, 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 and that, by the way, does not happen to people who don't remember near-death experiences. Right, okay. Which suggests that we don't have large numbers who are having them but don't remember them. Hmm. Okay. Give us an example of um, of someone uh, of a life changed dramatically as a result of a near-death sure, experience. Sure. Well, most people come back from a near-death experience feeling much more spiritual, not religious necessarily, but more spiritual and less concerned with material things, with possessions, a power, prestige, fame. They also become uh, much more caring and compassionate. And if you're leading leading a life that's based on uh, violence, then that can really shake up your life. And one example was a fellow I knew who was a uh, Marine sergeant who was shot in the chest and he had shrapnel all over his lungs and he was rushed to a military hospital away from the field. And during the operation to clear out the shrapnel from his lungs, he had a very elaborate near-death experience. And when he awoke from that, the idea of shooting someone else was totally unthinkable to him. Mm-hmm. He came back from his event thinking, we're all in this together. What I do to someone else, I'm doing to myself. And he could not go back into the field and lead his platoon back into battle. So he had to change his career. He dropped out of the Marines and became a medical technician. And I've heard story after story about this from people who were policemen who were not able to go back into the job, for people who were in a cutthroat business who thought that getting ahead at someone else's uh, expense no longer makes sense to them. They basically come back with a firm conviction in the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But they feel it's no longer for them just a guideline we're supposed to follow, but a law of nature like gravity. That's the way things are. When you hurt someone else, you hurt yourself, period. You also find uh, that people who attempt suicide but don't die and they have a near-death experience are less suicidal after the fact. How do you explain that? That's right. And that that surprised me because most people who have a near-death experience say they're no longer afraid of dying, no longer afraid of death. And as a psychiatrist, I knew that some people think about hurting themselves, but are deterred by fear of death. And I thought, if people know about this, they're going to become more suicidal. So I studied it. And I found that people who have a near-death experience as a result of a suicide attempt are much less suicidal than those who don't have a near-death experience. And what they say to me is that when you lose your fear of dying, you also lose your fear of living because you're not afraid of losing anything. So you tend to become uh, much more passionate about life. You enjoy it more. It becomes more meaningful and more fulfilling for you. And that is a strong deterrent to suicide. Bruce Grayson is a psychiatrist, a professor emeritus at the University of Virginia, author of the new book, After, A Doctor Explores What Near-Death Experiences Reveal About Life. Dr. Grayson, thank you for your time today. Really interesting work you're doing. Oh, Thank you so much, Julie. I'm glad to be here with you. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. The conversations in today's episode come from the Top of Mind archive. Thanks for tuning in today to Top of Mind. It's great to have you with us for a few minutes. I'm Julie Rose. Michael Gardner's Instagram feed is nearly all pictures of him and his nine-year-old daughter, Ava, sporting matching outfits. And get this, Michael makes all the clothing himself. He actually taught himself to sew just so he could create special things for Ava to model and occasionally for him too. His Instagram is Daddy Dressed Me by Michael Gardner. It's gone viral recently as he's gotten some national attention, even appeared on the Today Show for his work. And Michael Gardner is with us now. Hey there, thanks a lot for taking time. Hi, how are you? I'm doing really well. Thank you. Describe for us one of the latest outfits you've made for I, for Ava. 
Um, so I'll pick actually her ninth birthday, which was uh, last month. Um, we went to the fabric store. Um, I showed her an inspiration picture, which was Beyonce of all people. <laughs> um, and she was wearing like a sparkly suit. So I showed Ava, uh, we went to the fabric store. She picked out this really bright color, like uh, bold blue sequence fabric. Um, and I made her her version of a power suit basically. And I mean, she just, she fell in love. She, you know, she's a little girl. So obviously sequence is, you know, one of her favorites. And uh, she just pranced around all day feeling really good about herself. Oh, people need to go to your Instagram and look at that picture because she is she is owning that. And it is a great suit. Did you use do you use patterns? Do you model it off of other clothes that, um, you know, that she has? How are you making these things? So usually I'm modeling off of something I previously made her or something as simple as a T-shirt. Um, that particular suit, I did use a pattern, but I um, kind of put my own spin on it. So I left out certain pieces and uh, just made it more casual and um, like sporty for her. Um, but yeah, most of my work is self-drafted. When did you learn to sew and draft your own patterns like that? Um, so six years ago, um, I, you know, I've always been creative. So I was looking for a new creative challenge and then just a way to bond with Ava. At the time she was three and um, I saw my sister sewing and I was just like, I think I actually want to do this. So talked with her, uh, went and got a sewing machine and went to YouTube and Pinterest and just watched plenty of tutorials. And um, I started by actually like thrifting women's clothing and I upcycled it for Ava. Um, so just to kind of get comfortable behind the sewing machine. And then from there, I kind of built my confidence up, went and bought fabric and I've just been sewing the last six years, pretty much nonstop. Yeah, that's pretty remarkable that you, in six years, learned how to create your own clothing from scratch, not even using a pattern. My mom taught me how to sew when I was a kid, but I still can't do anything unless there's a pattern for it. <laughs> so, or, it. I mean, it's pretty <laughs> impressive that you can just be like, look at this killer Beyonce suit. Hey, Ava, let's go make one for you. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um. Tell me a little bit about this relationship with Ava that you've built over sewing. Um, why, of all the things that you felt like you could do for her, did you decide sewing for her would be such an important part of your relationship? Um, so when I knew I was going to become a dad, I kind of took a moment to look at some of the things that I struggled with within my childhood. Um, so like confidence, self-esteem. Um, I knew those were things I really wanted to focus on with any kid that I had. So they didn't have that same struggle. So, you know, at that point when she became, um, you know, when she turned three, I just, for my own personal journey was just like, I need something to do. Um, and it, it kind of came from her, like seeing her personality, um, the energy that she brings into any room um, and just how she liked to have fun. So, you know, it kind of, this became a blessing to merge my creativity into my fatherhood experience. And I mean, it's, it's bonded us in a way that I honestly, I couldn't even have imagined. Um, it's allowed us to communicate, to have deep conversations and just to most times just be able to enjoy each other having quality time. Sometimes it's, you know, it's her modeling me taking her pictures and so on. And then sometimes it's just us sitting playing Uno or cooking together or, you know, just literally anytime we're together, we're just trying to make the best of it. Hmm. What was your relationship with your father like? Are you following in his example with Ava somehow? No. Um, hmm. So my father didn't raise me. Um, so, you know, that kind of fuels how present and, um, you know, accessible and like supportive I am with Ava because I know and understand that pain of not having um, you know, my father raised me and all the pain that that caused me. So, you know, I knew I would never put her in that position. Um, so, you know, that, that, yeah, it just fueled me to kind of really become the best dad that I could possibly be. That's really amazing, Michael. Has it, has it become more than you expected? That first outfit you made for her, did you imagine that you were going to be making so many clothes for her? No, honestly, I, no, I never would have known that it would have grown to, um, you know, what it's become, especially, I guess, how it impacts like other people, just 
you know, seeing our bond, seeing our relationship, um, you know, the fun that we had together. And the biggest thing is actually when people, you know, message me or email me and say, you know, they're reminded of childhood memories of their mom or their grandma, um, and even a few dads that actually sold them clothes when they were kids. So that's been like the best part of this like entire experience. This is people who will reach out to you because they find you on the Instagram. They Yes. Okay. Yeah. It, it and so they're telling you that um that, that no, nobody nobody thinks it's a little strange that you know that that you're not her mom you're her dad and you're sewing. That's 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 unusual, I think, in given a lot of gender stereotypes. Right. Well, no, that definitely comes up too. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you know, I think that just adds like an extra, like a special layer, um, you know, to our bond. Obviously, you know, dads that are in their daughter's lives, like, you know, have a huge impact. So kind of seeing it and how she responds to the things that we do together, but then me sewing on top of that, doing her hair, doing her nails, just, you know, some, sometimes you don't necessarily see images of that from fathers. Um, even though there are plenty of fathers that actually are doing this, you know, maybe in private, they're not actually sharing it. Mm. Um, so yeah, it definitely adds a, another layer to like how, I guess, how unique this, you know, our, our, our situation is. Yeah. You, you Did you make the, the decision intentionally that you were going to be involved in all of those aspects of Ava's life? Aspects that, that traditionally a mother might do for her? Yes. Um, yeah, I just, as a parent, I just feel you know, even as a dad, like, you know, her care, you know, whatever she needs, like, that's my responsibility too. So, um, you know, just wanting to be, I never wanted to be in a position where she needed something from me and I just had to say no. So, you know, with doing her hair, it was like, okay, I'm going to learn how to do her hair. Hmm. Um, you know, and just like fun things like, you know, being vulnerable too, to be comfortable paint, painting her nails and, um, you know, other little girly things that she likes to do. I just wanted to be able to be present in that way. So she never felt like, oh, I can't do this or I can't do that when I'm with my dad. Like we can literally do anything together. How did the coordinating outfits come about? When, when did that start in your journey? Um, so I, I made our first one like about three years ago. And I mean, it was just like we we were out during the day. It was like really a fun experience. And Ava nonstop kept talking about it. Like, oh, I, you know, can we when can we do that again? When can we do that again? Um, Where you're so saying think, you're saying you made. So usually it's something like it's not the exact same piece of clothing, but it coordinates. So she's got like a, a skirt out of a fabric and maybe you've got a shirt or you've got a shirt with an applique that matches that fabric. Right. So clearly yeah. you guys you, you guys are a set. <laughs> right. <Yes. laughs> and you say that when you went out in public, it, that was really fun. Like describe that for me. What was the response? Yeah. So the outfit we were wearing three years ago was like we both had on like pink tops and blue shorts which was like a blue and white floral uh, fabric. So the pink was obviously already eye-catching. Um, and then you're seeing both of us wearing, you know, the same colors, the same prints, and people just, oh, like, you guys look great. And, you know, Ava's the one that kind of steps forward and says, oh, my daddy made it. Um, you know, I'm just like, oh, thank you, appreciative of the compliment. Um, she would take it to the next level and, like, kind of promote it, like, oh, I, dad, my daddy made this. He made both of our, you know, both of our outfits. Um, but yeah, she just never forgot that day. And she kept bringing it up. And I said, okay, last year I said, all right, let me, you know, start working on doing this more often. Now it's actually like my favorite thing to do. <laughs> uh, I don't really sew very much for myself. I'm usually just inspired to kind of create for her. Um, but yeah, that, that bonding too of just, you know, walking around matching and, you know, just kind of having fun. Like, I think it's her favorite thing to do. And then she gets to you know, take pictures with me where normally I'm taking her picture, you know, it's all eyes on her. She loves, I think, having that, having me standing next to her, kind of sharing in the limelight. But she likes to be noticed. Some kids would be horrified at the idea that their parent would wear something matching and that people would like look at them on the street. But she gets, <laughs> she gets energy out of that, it sounds like. Yeah, she loves it. When it comes to me, Ava is, I mean, I can literally do no wrong. Um, you know, everything is about, you know, her being a daddy's girl. So 
Yeah, she's never looked at it from that perspective. She she absolutely loves it. Hmm. So she's nine. And yeah. tell me about her closet, because the way you make clothes for her, she must have to have a whole room <laughs> to fit all of those clothes. <laughs> well, it's funny because normally, like most people that sew, you know, they can kind of keep it growing. But for her, because she's, you know, been a kid and has grown, I can't keep everything that, you know, I make for her. So there are like special outfits that I have created from a few of her birthdays. Um, every year we normally go to like a daddy daughter dance. Um, so I kept those, but yeah, it's constantly like shifting because, you know, I'll make her something next season. She can no longer wear it. So I'm taking that out and now I'm, you know, responsible for kind of creating something new. Mm. Um, so that's kind of the fun of it too. It's like, it's, it's constantly growing. <laughs> yeah. So do you donate? What do you do with the clothes that she outgrows? Some lucky dad and daughter out there could be inheriting <laughs> all of your sets. Yeah. So I have donated um, some outfits and some because, you know, she continuously wears and they're kind of like worn out. Um, so then those I have to get rid of. But yes, I've donated a lot and either donated or I've just kind of kept and hold on to some for sentimental reasons. Hmm. Is this your day job? Do you sell this stuff as well? No. So I tried that a couple years ago and I just did not like the experience of actually like sewing custom clothing for um, for other people. Um, the six years that I've been sewing, I've worked full time also. Mm. Um, I've had more time this year, you know, when the pandemic hit, I was laid off. So um, it's given me time to kind of fully commit to, um, you know, what it, what it is that we do creatively. Um, but no, it's, it's not for sale. <laughs> yeah. Although you've now with all this publicity you've been getting recently on the Today Show and NPR and lots of podcasts and all kinds of um, shows have been having you on. Is that is that changing the way you think about what you've been doing? The Daddy Dressed Me idea. Yes, because um, there were already things that I had kind of thought about, you know, wanting to do. Um with everything that's kind of happening now, it's really made me kind of sit down and focus more on kind of achieving those goals and, and figuring out where I want to take this next. Um, you know, I love like the place that we kind of have in the sewing community. So, um, you know, between the sewing and then just being a father, like those two will always be like what's most important to me and the message that I'm kind of sending out into the world. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm working through now trying to figure out what's, you know, what's the next step. Are you worried about a, a day where Ava, um, you know, might be 13 and she no longer wants to wear your clothes <laughs> or match with you? Do you see her outgrowing this? <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's been a conversation that we've had. I told her, you know, the day she wants to stop, we will stop. Mm. Um, you know, it's. Right now, it's fun, and I wanted to kind of stay that way. The day that it doesn't become fun for her or something that she enjoys, I don't want her to feel forced to do it. Um, and even now, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, having her more at the She's, you know, developed an interest in sewing as well. So, you know, it can shift to her creating her own clothing. She did some of that this summer. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm definitely keeping, you know, an open mind and just room for change in whichever way, you know, she decides at some point she, she kind of wants this all to go. <laughs> Michael Gardner, what's your advice for fathers who maybe sewing isn't the thing they're going to try, but they do want to, um, you know, they're, they're girl dads and they'd like to be involved, have the kind of bond that you and Ava have. What's your advice? Um, I would say one, show up, be present, be consistent. Um, you know, just talk to your kid, just pay attention to, what kind of sparks their interest. And that thing is what you can do together to kind of bond and just to kind of get the ball rolling. Um, you know, it things will change and new things and new ideas will come up. But if you're just kind of being present, fully engaged and showing, um, you know, your child that one-on-one -on attention, it, you know, you'll build a strong bond. Michael Gardner, good luck. And please say hi to Ava for us. I love seeing her photos on your Instagram feed. Thank you. I will do. Thank you so much. Michael Gardner is the creator of Daddy Dressed Me. You can find pictures of him and his daughter and their matching outfits. And it is just so fun to look at. Check him out on Instagram, Daddy Dressed Me by MG or Daddy Dressed Me by MG.com. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. 
This is a curated episode of Top of Mind from the Archive. It's great to have you along today for Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Famous ocean explorer Jacques Cousteau co-invented scuba diving and built the first underwater research habitat, where scientists lived and worked for weeks at a time back in the 1960s. Jacques Cousteau made being an aquanaut a possibility. Now his grandson, Fabian Cousteau, is planning to build a larger underwater research laboratory with room for 12 scientists to live and work for a much longer period of time at the bottom of the sea. He envisions it as kind of an international space station in the ocean. Fabian Cousteau is raising money for the habitat, which he calls Proteus, and he joins me now on the line. Mr. Cousteau, thanks for your time. Welcome. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Why do you really need to live underwater? Couldn't you just scuba dive down, make your observations, scuba dive home, do it again the next day? You can scuba dive down uh, to a certain extent. Uh, And the deeper you go, the more decompression obligations you have, the more constraints you have, the more difficult it is, and the more dangerous it is. Uh, And uh, you also have to contend with uh, weather patterns at the surface. You have to contend with uh, other sorts of of, uh, issues, potential issues, uh, equipment failure, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, and, and it's exhausting to, to come up and down from the surface as well. And so uh, if you think about it in a, in a co-efficiency of time, uh, we were able to do uh, with a previous mission that I led called Mission 31, we were able to do over three years worth of scientific experiments in the 31 days that we spent at the bottom of the sea in a, uh, from the only remaining undersea marine laboratory, Aquarius, versus coming from the surface from a boat. And so that gives you kind of the, the, the idea of how efficient it is and how much more access you get being and living and working from a, a, a space station or a uh, laboratory at the bottom of the sea. That mission you mentioned where you were underwater for 31 days um, at an underwater research lab, which is off the coast of Florida, this was back in, I think, 2014. What did you learn about underwater living from that experience that um, is informing what you're planning for Proteus? Well, so, you know, my grandfather built uh, the first, uh, some of the first underwater habitats uh, in the early 1960s. And so this was way previous to m- my time on this planet. Uh, so I'd only heard uh, stories about this. I had a chance to go and visit Aquarius a little bit previous to Mission 31. And uh, it awoke in my, my, my senses or my thoughts of, wow, this is a really interesting platform. I wonder if it could be used for today's modern day research. And so uh, it was an experiment. Mission 31 was a total experiment on two fronts. First, uh, if if this is a viable platform, and two, uh, can we use this also to connect the world with the importance of the ocean? And on both fronts, we found that the answer was yes. Now, despite the the limitations that a 400 internal square foot habitat gave us for Mission 31, which is uh, the footprint of Aquarius, uh, we were still able to do that three years worth of science thanks to, uh, in large part, our, our partnerships with uh, higher-order uh, universities, uh, from a public university called uh, Florida International University to a, uh, a private one called Northeastern University to uh, uh, MIT. And we were able to, uh, in coordination with them, gather all the scientific research that normally would take them uh, three years to do, uh, which we were able to execute in those 31 days, despite the limitations that we had. So imagine building something 10 times the size of that 32-year-old habitat and being able to cater to teams of up to 12 or more for not a few days or a couple of weeks, but weeks, months, and maybe longer. Imagine Pandora's box being opened of possibilities to look at the solutions for new viral pandemics, for example, or the next cancer break, uh, research breakthrough or the next uh, uh, pain mitigator. Uh, you know, we know so little about our ocean world. It's the chemical soup that made us possible. It's our life support system. And yet we are completely foreign and alien to what it provides us or what it can provide us in the future. 
So for me, an underwater habitat just makes sense to be able to execute on everything from biochemistry and marine biology to biomechanics and an anecdote for space colonization. How deep underwater would it be, Proteus? So Proteus would be, for pragmatic reasons, would be at three atmospheres. And that's really uh, for two reasons. One, uh, physiologically, that is the limit at which uh, human physiology physiology can deal with with, uh, multiple atmospheres of oxygen before that becoming potentially toxic to the individual. And number two, uh, also for uh, efficiency, for for economic uh, viability, so that you can run the, the entire habitat on air, on multiple atmospheres of air, not uh, specialized gases like trimix or heliox, which demand uh, a much higher cost and specialized training. How deep down is three atmospheres, though, in feet? Uh, yeah, so sea level is 14.7 psi. That's one atmosphere. So for every 10 meters you go down in a water column, especially in in salt water specifically, that's another atmosphere. So we're talking about 20 meters or 66 feet. And that's really where you want the the air-water interface to be, or just uh, just shy of that, actually. Okay. Is that that deep enough to to get... Oh, absolutely. I'll give you an example, uh, just a a basic example. Uh, Say you're diving down, for your, your first question, say you're diving down from the surface uh, you can go down to 150 feet for just a couple of minutes before you start accruing decompression obligations. From a habitat at three atmospheres, you can now stay down for about five and a half hours on the same gases uh, without decompression. So you can do a lot more work in that amount of time than having to go back up to the surface, wait for your surface interval, come back down for another two minutes or less, and so on and mm. so forth. But we're trying to cater to uh, researchers who aren't necessarily commercial divers or advanced divers, uh, we want to be able to to cater to um, a larger group of people who could stand to use this platform. So would the this underwater research facility be anchored to the seafloor somewhere, or is it like a submarine? Does it sort of just float at 60 <laughs> feet underwater? Uh, an excellent question. Without giving away some of the technological and engineering breakthroughs that uh, we're developing for this, uh, it, you know, just like other habitats, what we're trying to do is uh, mitigate and avoid uh, as much as possible our environmental footprint. And so with that, uh, I also have to, to mention that a habitat is not a submarine. A submarine is meant to stay at one atmosphere inside, right? The same uh, air pressure that you're breathing on a day-to-day basis. And that allows for a lot of things, but it segregates you from the environment. The inside pressure of the habitat is the same as the outside pressure. And that allows for you to uh, actually go into the ocean environment uh, virtually as long as you want. Uh, In the case of Mission 31, we were diving, each and every one of us, anywhere from eight to 12 hours a day, which simply isn't pragmatic from the surface. Uh, with regard to the architecture, uh, there uh, there will be uh, some future announcements. But yes, we'll have a, a minimal footprint on the on the ocean floor, and the air water interface will be at sixty six feet. Hmm. Okay, okay. So you haven't picked a location for it quite yet, then. Uh, we do. We we have picked. So we we have a favored jurisdiction, uh, Curacao. The government of Curacao uh, uh, has signed an MOU with us. Uh, within two weeks uh, of our announcement of Proteus. I'm speaking with Fabian Cousteau, who is uh, an underwater researcher. He's the grandson of Jacques Cousteau, and he's planning and fundraising right now for an underwater international space station type operation where researchers could go. It's called Proteus. Uh, it's in the early stages of fundraising and, de- and design. How do you envision, you said that this would, you want this to be a place where people could come who are not necessarily professional divers with a lot of diving experience. So so how, how do you envision that? Would it be like the International Space Station where you might get a crew from a university or from a private organization that gets in a shuttle of some sort and like goes down and then gets on <laughs> into the, the station and then just sort of like stays there for a couple of weeks or something? Um, and then takes their research and goes home. Is that right? Well, that, that, that's a, uh, quite a, a, a good description, as a matter of fact. Uh, yes, yeah, so, so basically, uh, it's precisely what we're trying to do, is to be able to, uh, to cater to universities, to businesses, 
uh, to government entities who may be able to leverage the, the usefulness of this habitat in a way that is uh, broad, uh, broadly acceptable to those who are not necessarily extremely well-trained divers. Uh, I realize that 60 feet underwater is a big deal because of all the pressure and so forth, but um, but it's really not that far. You could like run a supply line straight down to it, right, from the surface. Is that is that the vision, like to have oxygen intake and, and you know, a power cord <laughs> running down to it? Everything will basically be surface run? So the, the way that uh, Proteus will be structured uh, for uh, life support system, for power system, for communications, for, for, um, for uh, water, uh, we'll have an umbilical to the uh, shoreline. Because of the topography of Curacao, it allows for us to be not too far away from shore. So we, we will have that ability. Uh, we'll be based on renewable energy, uh, which actually is already available on, uh, on Curacao. Uh, but we also are looking into technologies like OTEC, ocean thermal energy conversion, which is highly efficient, uh, at least in this part of the world. Uh, additionally to that, uh, water is uh, vitally important, fresh water, uh, and OTEC does provide for that as well as a, a nearby desal plant. Uh, so, yes, uh, and 60 feet doesn't sound like a lot, but it's not about the depth, it's about the, the saturation. Because mm. as an aquanaut, as, when you commit to one of these missions, you become saturated. So you're, you've become, by default, a saturation diver. And whether you are 60 feet or 70 feet or 80 feet or what have you, you then need to go through extensive decompression obligations to get back to the surface. So once you commit to, uh, to a mission, uh, you might as well be on the far side of the moon until you go through 24 hours of decompression, and then you uh, then you can go back to the surface. What's the maximum length of time that we think a human could stay at saturation like that? That is an excellent question, and to be quite honest, we don't know. Uh, I would imagine that uh, provided we follow the, uh, the, the protocols and, and past wisdom, that we could stay down for months, maybe longer, uh, before having to come back to the surface. Hmm. What does it feel like to be uh, 60 feet below the surface of the water, but basically entirely cut off? You know, it's a, it's a very personal feeling. For me, it was home. Um, I, at, at the end of our 31-day mission, uh, my saddest day was having to give up that luxury of time at the bottom of the sea to come back to the surface. For others, they were more than happy to come back and rejoin their friends and families and, and pets. Uh, and, and yet others uh, were ready to stay down another couple of weeks because it was such a fireworks display of life and, and so alien and different. With Aquarius, the, the, the space limitations are one of the, uh, one of the limiting factors because uh, just like a, a, a space mission in outer space, uh, a mission to the bottom of the sea uh, needs to cater to our, our psyche as well as our physiological needs. And so that includes things like lighting. That includes things like eating foods that are not just freeze-dried all the time. And we do, tend, uh, we, we do plan on growing some of our own food at the bottom of the sea. And all those things sound trite because we live here on, uh, on land. But when you're in a segregated environment, an alien environment, uh, it's very important to play into the things that make us human so that we can stay down for long periods of time in relative comfort and do the work that we need to do as, efficient, as efficiently and as comfortably as we can do it. Fabian Cousteau, how aware were you as a child of the, the, the groundwork that your grandfather, Jacques Cousteau, was laying um, f- for the vision that you have today? <laughs> well, I've... <laughs> I, I grew up in a very uh, unusual family. I've been scuba diving since the age of four. I've been on expeditions since my seventh birthday. And uh, it's been a natural part of my background uh, throughout my lifetime. It's something that has made me who I am. Uh, it is really has been the classroom uh, growing up and probably why I see uh, the world from the bottom up. But it also gave me a huge appreciation for the diversity of culture, the diversity that our planet has to offer us, and the understanding that without ocean, uh, there's no such thing as, as life. Uh, we, if we didn't have our uh, ocean layer on this planet, we'd be a lifeless brown rock like all the others, or like so many others uh, in space. And so for us to uh, be able to, to uh, shepherd a, a better tomorrow, 
we need to be better connected to our life support system, each and every one of us. That doesn't mean that we have to be marine biologists, but we need to be able to understand that in order for us to thrive, the ocean has to thrive. How do you envision this underwater research facility um, as being a part of, of that? Well, one of the big goals is not just to do research, but also to talk about it, to connect the world to the bottom of the sea live. And one of the um, parts or one of the important aspects of the umbilical back to the surface is to be able to connect with the world through, uh, through classroom sessions, through uh, being able to have live feeds so that people can look in and see what we're doing, to be able to show and highlight what kinds of advanced research is being done, or even the, the mundane, uh, seemingly mundane uh, life and times of an aquanaut. Uh, so that people can get a better appreciation, a better understanding, and maybe really engage the general public who may never get a chance to even see the ocean world, much less be an aquanaut, to understand why we're doing these things and why that's so important to us as individuals, whether we live on the ocean front, on a beach, or a thousand miles away in the mountains, what ocean means to us and what we can stand to gain from that on so many levels. And that spans the gamut from ocean conservation to discoveries to uh, new creatures to all sorts of, of, of solutions uh, and, and generating even the possibility of new businesses uh, by creating all of these, uh, these new discoveries on the various platforms, engineering, science, you name it. When do you expect to have this uh, research facility up and running? We're right now in phase one. We're about to close our first phase of fundraising, which is exciting. Uh, I'm happy to say that now that we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel of the viral pandemic, uh, people are starting to really get energized. And so we've got uh, some, some investors that are making it possible. Uh, once we close that round, we'll open up round two where we're going to do the engineering drawings, uh, start uh, the, the, the real ones, not just the concepts, and we're going to start bending metal. Mm-hmm. So provided everything goes well between now and the, and the time we install, I'm, it's, I'm estimating about 32 to 36 months before we're operational in the water. Fabian Cousteau is the founder of the Fabian Cousteau Ocean Learning Center, uh, working on this underwater research uh, laboratory project. Very exciting, called Proteus. Thanks a lot for taking time today, Mr. Cousteau. I appreciate it. Absolutely my pleasure. And if uh, you want to learn any more, it's very easy. You can go to ProteusOceanGroup.com. I'm Julie Rose. Today's episode was a selection of our favorite conversations from the Top of Mind archive. Find more on the free BYU Radio app. We'll talk soon.